0: Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. I don't know if I know these words <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yes Wow, I can't believe we're here
0: Episode 18 Episode 18 Episode 18 mm-hmm. Episode 18 Episode eighteen. <laughs> oh my god, I love it Most Fowl Podcast Is doing episode 18 <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think you should work that up <laughs>
0: This is why we need to hire a producer. Be like, put some auto-tune on that.
1: (laughs) I don't know. That sounded pretty good. Can you hear my husband, like, putting groceries away in the background? No. (laughs) I think we should just leave it in. (laughs) Uh, I told him complete silence. And I put up some cork sound absorbers, but...
0: Tis the season. Yeah.
1: Yeah welcome to my abode happy
0: honda days oh
1: god (laughs) and to
0: those who celebrate happy toyota thon to you
1: (laughs) (laughs) i was listening to an episode the other day and you could hear my dog my dog made it in there was a little like oh yeah
0: (laughs) sometimes i feel like i can hear like claws on hardwood
1: (laughs) 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 yeah it adds
0: character
1: we did really well of i think keeping the veil of mystery around like we could be in a recording studio and not in your closet and
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah every time i have to go wait they're emptying the dumpster again
1: (laughs) (laughs) just a little bit of that movie magic
0: (laughs) every day of the week as they empty the dumpster (laughs) Doesn't matter the time, doesn't matter the day. If we're recording, they will empty it. I
1: secretly just send them our record schedule so they can come. (laughs) It's my plan to get you to move to the East Coast.
0: I knew something was up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So it is episode 18. It is some point in the future in December. I forget exactly when this one's coming out
0: very close to uh, christmas
1: Mm which is how we chose our topic for this week and after
0: hanukkah because hanukkah is very early this year It
1: starts tomorrow now you all know when we're recording this hanukkah is tomorrow
0: (laughs) yeah and i was like but it's not even december yet
1: (laughs) Well, and to get in the spirit, so we've mentioned this before, and i like to talk about this disproportionate to actually like everything in my life, but the holiday recordings, the holiday mixes that I used to make, and Andrew helped me with one year, so we bonded on this. We had so much fun, and I was raised Catholic, so they started out kind of Jesus-y just because That's what I knew, you know, and then I was like, well, I have a lot of friends who are not Jesus fans. And so I started expanding, and then I added some Hanukkah, and I added some Kwanzaa, and then some Solstice, and like atheist song. But as a consequence, I'm going somewhere with this. Stay with me. (laughs) As a consequence, my daughters love Hanukkah songs because I always picked really awesome Hanukkah songs. And so My oldest has been asking for several years now since like she was four if we could celebrate Hanukkah. And I said, um, you know, we're not Jewish and I don't know that much about it. But she kept asking and I thought, well, as long as we're kind of respectful and we do it in, you know, in the spirit of learning. And so last year was the first time that we celebrated Hanukkah and we got books and we learned all about it. And so this year it kind of snuck up on me, but I know that she's gonna want to celebrate again. So we've got to unpack the, we didn't put up Christmas decorations because we've got to take out the, the menorah and we've got the candles. And I mean, the most important part from our like very heathen appreciation is the gold coins and the dreidels. Mm-hmm. So we, we've got to get our whole set up
0: so a real-time discussion Mm -hmm. should we make a kirsten's holiday playlist mix Mm -hmm. on most foul and that's a little gift for the listener to go check that out because this comes out on the 20th of december so it's still holiday time
1: yeah i like that idea I mean, you know how fond I am of those mixes. Like it, you would think that I had actually written and performed all of the songs myself. I take so much pride (laughs) in.
0: And I was thinking maybe the ten-year mix. So not making a brand new one for this year, but going to the one that uh, we created before.
1: Yeah, I like it. Yeah, because I mean, a new mix. I used to, no lie, I used to start my mixes in, like, October. So I could think of which ones, pick the best version, get the right sequence of them all. I mean, a lot of thought and work went into those mixes.
0: So, listeners, go to Most Fabled Pod on Spotify, and you'll see our playlist of music related to crimes, which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> And now you'll see a very well curated holiday playlist, which is Yay. not crazy.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I just say that because I normally add the songs into the playlist, and there are some horrific ones on there. The Green River Killer, uh, horrific ones mixed with really great ones. There's no flow, there's no mix.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a very unique playlist
0: and i have put it on to play before and like it's interesting (laughs) but when do you ever listen to that wild of a mix yeah
1: yeah but it's does it really like carry the vibe uh
0: i think it carries the vibe of being unhinged I think you really get into a mindset that is unraveling by listening to the playlist from start to finish.
1: I mean, that's kind of our thing. Most foul.
0: So that's our little most foul holiday gift to everybody. Check out that, that playlist.
1: Yay. <laughs> oh, gosh. But, but we alluded
0: to it earlier, picking this episode topic. Mm, Yeah. It's not really a Christmas story.
1: No, just that the 25th anniversary of this crime is coming up. And so, I mean, it's not gimmicky. It just, you know, this was always going to be a case that we would cover. And it, it seemed like the perfect time as people are remembering this really terrible crime 25 years later and still not having any resolution.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So do you think we should jump in?
1: Yeah, I think so. Okay, so we're going to go back to our typical format, and I'm going to get us started here. And this is another one that, I mean, unless you've been on the moon for the last 25 years, or maybe, I don't know, you're 15 and your parents let you listen to things like this, you know about the John Binet Ramsey case. As we mentioned, the 25th anniversary is coming up, and so our story starts... On December twenty fifth, nineteen ninety six, in Boulder, Colorado, and we can start by talking about the Ramsey family because these are really the main players in this story. Of course, John Bennett Ramsey, who was six at the time of the murder, and her parents, John Bennett Ramsey, who was her father, worked as a business executive and was fifty three at the time. And Patricia Ann Ramsey, known as Patsy, who was her mother, and a stay-at-home mom, also a pageant mom, which we'll talk more about that, who was 39 at the time. And Jean-Benet's brother, Burke Ramsey, who was nine at the time. I wanna just start, I guess, by going through a timeline. Andrew and I kinda, we talked about this off pod a little. In looking back at this, I lived through this. I was in my 20s when this happened. I mean, lived through this, meaning I was cognizant when this was happening and I kind of knew about it because there was no way not to. It was on every tabloid, it was everywhere. Mm -hmm. But in going back and doing research, I realized that maybe more than any other case we've covered because of the way it was handled, both by the family and by investigators, there was just more information than most people can process or hold on to over long periods of time. So as I went back to re-examine and kind of look at what actually happened, um, I realized that a lot of what I knew or thought I knew was peppered with rumors and things that I had heard third hand from here or there. And so I really focused on putting together a timeline and pulling out the fact from the fiction or from, you know, opinions versus facts. So, let's just start back in 1996 and we're going to go a couple days before before the incidents of Christmas night on December 23rd, 1996. And this is an example of something that I either never knew or had forgotten all about. But on December 23rd, 1996, a 911 call is made from the Ramsey home. And later, it was kind of explained as an accidental 911 call that had been placed by a drunk party guest. The Ramseys were having a Christmas party at their home. But it's just kind of one of those kind of makes you wonder kinds of things that I think is important to include. And then we go to the night of the crime itself. So December 25th, it's Christmas Day. The Ramsey family went to a Christmas party at the home of family friend Fleet White on the evening of christmas so they had christmas at home and normal family christmas open presents and then later that evening they they go to this um, christmas party the family returned later that night and john benet was placed in her bed by her father john while patsy prepared a late night snack for burke in the kitchen and we're going to come back to this so just kind of keep this in mind that burke and and patsy are downstairs having a snack Um, and Benet is being placed into her bed. Then at 5.30 the next morning on December 26, 1996, Patsy is coming downstairs to have her morning coffee or tea or whatever, and she discovers either two and a half or three and a half page, I saw both cited, handwritten ransom note on the back stairs leading down from the bedrooms to the kitchen. On a little investigation, I mean, you know, she reads the note, she's freaking out, she goes and she checks, and JonBenet is not in her bed. And Patsy called 911, and that was at about 5.50, I think, 5.45. Then at 6 a.m., or before 6 a.m., police officer Rick French arrived at the home, and he performs a preliminary search of the house. Reports state that he did go into the basement, and he paused by... The door that John Binet was later found behind, but he didn't open it. And at some point before the afternoon, Patsy calls friends, and in spite of the ransom note specifically stating that they should not notify police or anyone else about the kidnapping, she invites friends and I think her pastor over for emotional support. The first detective on the scene, Linda Arndt, didn't arrive until early afternoon. So from 6 a.m. until, I mean, I don't know how we want to define early afternoon, one, two.
2: I mean, mm-hmm.
1: a, lot of, a lot of time has passed. People in the house that are not family members. By that time, Fleet White, the friend who had thrown the party from the night before, was at the house amongst other folks, aren't directed John Ramsey, the father, and White to do a more thorough search of the house, which, what the fuck, Again,
0: yeah, it makes no sense.
1: It makes no sense. But to try to present a balanced view here, Arndt was fairly inexperienced. Um, she was a fairly new detective. And also they still thought they were dealing with a kidnapping at this time. So you know, hindsight is 2020 a little bit, but I don't know, it seems like that kind of breaches protocol. All of this breaches protocol from what I understand. But during this search, John finally went downstairs and opened that door to the spare room in the basement and discovered Jean Binet's body. And it's important to note here, she was covered with a sheet. He immediately disturbed the scene and picked up Jean Binet and brought her upstairs, leaving the basement door open for anyone else to go down there. And he placed her by the tree, by the Christmas tree, and covered her with now another blanket and you know i keep mentioning she was covered when he found her and he covered her again because that's something that most police associate with something that is done by a killer who knows the victim now police come now it's a murder it turns into a homicide investigation they come to the scene they're doing their police stuff and it wasn't until 10:45 that night that the coroner removed john benet's body from the house on December 28th, 1996, so two days after the body was found, John and Patsy cooperate with authorities, and they go to the Boulder Police Department and give hair, blood, and handwriting samples. So at this point, like, the key piece of evidence is that ransom note, and so they, they want to compare handwriting. On December 29th, 1996, again, three days after the murder, and incidentally, it was Patsy's 40th birthday, John, Patsy, and their nine-year-old son, Burke, flew to Atlanta, where they had previously lived and still had family. So, you know, we'll go on and talk about kind of behavior and what seems normal. I think this is one of those things, when people look back at it, that just doesn't feel normal, to be leaving a crime scene mm-hmm. so quickly. On December 31st of that year, Bonnet's funeral is held in Atlanta, and she's buried in Marietta, where her older half-sister is buried she has a half-siblings from her dad's first marriage and so she's laid to rest. Again, this strikes me as just very quick. On the next day, January 1st, 1997, John and Patsy gave an interview to CNN and announced to the world in that interview that there was, quote, a killer on the loose. Now, Boulder PD had been assuring people in the Boulder area that there was not a killer on the loose. So investigators were pretty dismayed. They were also very dismayed because the couple gave this interview to CNN after they had recently refused to give a police interview because they were, quote, too emotional to speak with police. Mm -hmm. But they had the wherewithal to go on national television and talk about it. So the police are finding something strange here. So the next day, uh, January 2nd, five Boulder detectives flew to Atlanta to formally interview John and Patsy for the first time. On January 3rd, detectives reveal the ransom note was written inside the house on a pad owned by the Ramseys and a pen that came from the house. Another thing to note here that I read is that not only had the pad and pen come from within the house, there had been a practice note written before, and the pad and the pen were put away in the house. So, again, very kind of strange information.
0: Yeah, you kill a kid, you find a pad and pen, you practice a note, you write the note, you put the pad and pen away for what? Like, all while the family's in the house?
1: Sleeping, yeah.
0: Yeah. Sorry, I, I'm i not helping in your quest to present a slightly unbiased <laughs> version of events.
1: Yeah, I mean, it just is very strange. And again, I knew about the note and all of that. But I didn't know about that little detail about putting the pad and the pen away, which, yeah, super strange. And also, I mean, a two and a half or three and a half page ransom note, you write that twice, like how much time does a killer want to spend in a house with people who can catch them Mm -hmm. anyway though around this same time john and patsy returned to boulder and this was in part i think due to the influence of friends and family who were kind of questioning themselves why they would be in atlanta when all of this is happening in boulder again if there really is a killer out there why would they not be putting everything possible into helping police find that killer Mm mm-hmm at the same time, detectives fly to Charlevoix, Michigan, which is the location of a summer home that the Ramseys had. And what, what they are looking for is more handwriting samples. So on March 7th, three months later, the handwriting analysis comes back and it eliminates John, but not Patsy. So the next day, the police go back to the Ramsey's Michigan home. Again, they're looking for more handwriting samples. And what I saw is that they wanted historic unrehearsed writing samples Mm -hmm. to compare. On April 30th of 1997, John is formally questioned again for two hours. And Patsy is questioned for six and a half hours. And they are both now considered prime suspects so on may 2nd 1997 john and patsy gave their infamous media statement in which they publicly proclaimed their innocence and offered a hundred thousand dollar reward um and they held up the you know that famous picture of them on the couch with the with the flyer
2: Mm -hmm.
1: on july of that july 14th of that year john benet's autopsy reports are released to the public and as expected there was evidence of the wrist binding. She had been gagged and she had been killed with a ligature. What was maybe unexpected is not the right word, but what was not obvious to those who saw the crime scene or to people who had read public reports was that there was also evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. And there was an eight and a half inch skull fracture that by the dad's account hadn't been visible at the crime scene this was something that even according to police they didn't know about until the autopsy Mm -hmm. they also interestingly found undigested pineapple in her stomach um, which indicated that it had been eaten very shortly before her death and now you will remember that i mentioned burke having a snack in the kitchen at the time, um, John Binet was put to bed and pineapple was a favorite snack of both of them and there was a bowl of pineapple down there and also a flashlight found next to this bowl of pineapple in the kitchen. And that will become relevant. We'll talk more about that. It's just, again, important to note, they found pineapple in her stomach and that is the snack that had been prepared for Burke the night of the murder. So on January 15th of 1998, so again, now we're like a full month and a little, a full year and a month out from, from the crime, the Ramses at this point start to refuse to give interviews to the authorities. Up to this point, they had been kind of begrudgingly cooperative, but they had been cooperative. This is when they kind of turned that off. Later that month though, they finally submitted the clothes that they were wearing on the night of the murder. But when I saw the list of what they had turned in, it only included two shirts, a pair of pants, and a sweater. So again, just something to note for a later discussion, those were supposed to be the clothes for both of them. So a pair of pants or a skirt or some kind of bottom for one person was not on that list.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: On March 12th of 1998, a grand jury investigation was called. And so starting in June, June 10th to the 12th, John Benet's brother Burke, who was the only other person besides her parents known to be in the house at the time of the murder, he was questioned. And by this time he was 11. Then in August of that year, Denver detective Steve Thomas resigned from the case with an eight page resignation letter calling the case quote, crippled by the DA's office. Later that same month, Burke's voice was reportedly overheard on the enhanced 911 call. So when Patsy called that morning and spoke with 911, they enhanced that call. And some people believe that they, Burke could be heard in the background. And that's important because they were very clear about the fact that Burke was sleeping all morning until police arrived. And that is a story that he maintains to this day. So when he gave. Um, his interview, which we'll talk about later, he talked about the police coming in and waking him in his bedroom. On September 15th of '98, the grand jury finally began their investigation. And then later that month, another detective, Lou Smith, resigned with a two-page letter citing, quote, "a very dangerous killer out there." So at this point we see kind of two schisms within the investigative team. one that was kind of, Seeing the parents as being involved and possibly responsible, and another as seeing the parents not involved and supporting kind of the intruder theory. Mm-hmm. In March eight, on March eighteenth of nineteen ninety nine, so now we moved into the next calendar year. Detective Linda Arnt, the first detective on the scene, if you remember, she resigns. So I mean, it's just kind of a shit show in in terms of the back end and what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. May 19th of 99, the grand jury secretly questioned Burke, who at that time was now 12, and listed him as a witness, not a suspect. Then in September of 99, Detective Arndt appears on Good Morning America, and she said she knew who killed Binet, but declined to say who the killer was on TV for obvious legal reasons. On October 13th of 1999, DA Alex Hunter says there is, quote, No sufficient evidence, end quote, to charge anyone with the crime, despite the grand jury recommendation that John and Patsy be indicted for murder. On March 17, 2000, the Ramseys published The Death of Innocence, a book about their daughter's murder, and began a publicity campaign to support its release. A month later, former detective Steve Thomas, he of the eight-page resignation, released his own book on the case, John Bonet, Inside the Ramsey Murder Investigation, and in that book he claimed Patsy was the killer and John helped her cover up the crimes in May of 2000 John and Patsy held another press conference and they announced that they had taken lie detector tests and it had cleared them of involvement in John Benes' murder but
0: which Gary Ridgway passed a lie detector <laughs> we know they're not real
1: yes also the detectives of the case would say it wasn't conducted by the fbi so you know it was like they're not very reliable and you didn't have yours done properly and it's not admissible in court anyway yada mm-hmm. yada yeah on june twenty fourth, two 2006 nine and a half years after her daughter's murder patsy died of ovarian cancer which she had been diagnosed with way back in 1993 and had been in remission with for a while Um, but it came back in 2002. In August of 2006, authorities announced their intention to extradite American convicted sex offender John Mark Carr from Thailand after he made what turned out to be a false confession of involvement in John Binet's murder. That same day, famous FBI profiler John Douglas, who Andrew mentioned in last week's episode, he stated that he believed from early on that John and Patsy didn't do it. And I should note here that he was hired by John and Patsy to investigate. Um, I have a lot of respect for John Douglas, and he was kind of one of the... His books were things that really got me into hardcore, like the science side of things. But we have to note that he was being paid by the family. Anyway, he says he always believed that they didn't do it. And he says why plus how equals who and the parents had no motive so i watched this whole interview and i have to say again having a lot of respect for him i've read all his books like kind of idolize his early work but everything he says about this case just feels really off now Granted, like he's an esteemed professional with a lot of experience and he has interviewed face to face a lot of these heinous killers who we talk about every week, but he just seems very off in this case. And mainly because he said, and I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing in this interview, he said parents kill children, right? So there's this, there's a camp out there who says parent, a parent could never do this. He, you know, he's seen a lot in his years. He said, parents kill, but they don't kill like this. He said it doesn't feel like the flavor, he actually used that word, doesn't feel like a parent killing. I just, I could talk all day just about that, but I want to move on and keep with the timeline, but just to note that here. So that's 2006.
0: When we'll talk about it, but she could have also accidentally died and they covered it up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like it could have still been manslaughter, not a premeditated murder. Mm-hmm. Maybe she shouldn't have been up. Maybe she got pushed down the stairs and that's how she gets an eight and a half inch f- fracture. Like it could, they could still all be lying and covering up a manslaughter.
1: I mean, I think the part that he's really talking about, which he doesn't go into graphic detail, I think out of deference for the family and the relationship he has with them, is that he I don't think he believes that loving parents would stage a sexual assault oh I but yeah I we'll disagree. get into our own theories yeah yeah but
0: i I think allegedly 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 the, the dad was maybe assaulting her for a while yeah like that doesn't mean that this was a part mm-hmm. of the death right. So, I don't think the sexual assault was staged. I think he might have been doing that just in general. Yeah. Or people in her pageants or the pageant sphere, like, yeah, we'll get into it.
1: <laughs> so, then on July 9th, 2008, there is a new DA in Boulder, and her name is Mary Lacey. And she officially cleared John and Patsy of any involvement in the crime, citing third-party what's called touch-transfer DNA that was known to be from two males who were unrelated to the Ramseys but unidentified. And those were found in the blood on John Binet's underwear. And that's using new techniques. So it's taking very small samples that are distributed just as the name implies through touch. And so I did, you know, not exhaustive, but I read a little bit about this technique and it's very useful, but it also has some limitations. And the context that I read it in is false people being convicted because of touch DNA. So Mm -hmm. the idea is that the samples are so small and that's what makes them very easy to pass around. But it can also be a false positive because it just could be an innocent person shedding cells or shedding, you know, saliva. Now, after the pandemic, we know how how much we actually send saliva out into our environment. And there's
2: a lot of questions.
1: That is a whole kind of area. But retired Boulder police chief Mark Beckner claimed that. The DA was actually swayed by her belief, i.e. prejudice, that a mother could not kill their child in this manner. And rather than seeking the truth, she really was seeking to exonerate Patsy, who at this point now is deceased. So the D- the chief of police is basically saying, or the retired chief of police, sorry, is saying that she kind of has an ax to grind. Like Mm -hmm. in her mind, she's decided that a mother couldn't do this. And so she's making the evidence fit the conclusion that she wants. And he stated in that same article that in touch transfer DNA, the samples are so minuscule that they could come from someone who touched the underwear in the manufacturing process. I mean, they could have been deposited in a million kind mm-hmm. of different ways from different sources that are not related to the crime. And that's just kind of generally a weakness of that kind of DNA. So after nearly 20 years, on September 12, 2016, Burke, uh, Jean Benet's brother, who by that time was 29, made an appearance on the Dr. Phil show. And just to note, he was paid for the interview, according to CBS News. Burke didn't reveal any new information in that interview, but he stated his belief that, quote, it probably was some pedophile in the pageant audience, end quote. So he's got his own kind of theory. Weirdly, he smiles through most of the interview. I, I, I don't know if you've seen it. It's a very unsettling interview. And of course, some people claim that this weird smile is nervous smiling, or I kind of went down the rabbit hole and there's a whole YouTube channel of body language ex- experts known as the Behavior Panel, which is super interesting. Mm-hmm. Have you watched them?
0: I don't think I've seen them.
1: You should check it out because it's just interesting and I want to see what they say about all other kinds of things. I love um, I love body language stuff. Anyway, one of them calls it the smile of placation. So basically he's trying to please Dr. Phil um, with that smile. The others kind of referred to his baseline as being a smiling face. And I didn't realize this, but they said, look at pictures of him at his mom's funeral. He's got that same weird smile. And I looked and he does. So they were kind of speculating, you know, the child of a beauty queen and a, and a pageant mom. You know, he's being told at home, smile, put on a smile. And so they kind of felt like that was just his baseline. But other people say that that smile is evidence of something called duper's delight, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's a pleasure derived from being able to fool or manipulate someone. And that is usually evidenced by people who smile at inappropriate times. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the timeline that brings us up to today. And those are, of course, just like the high notes of it. And then as I'm doing the research, I I just kind of kept a running list of questions that I had. So at this point, I mean, we're kind of out of the crime, but not quite into culture. And we're just in the like wildly speculate out of our asses section. But as I went through, one of my obvious first questions was, was there any evidence of forced entry? And I didn't know of any. But apparently police did discover one door to the Ramsey home that was unlocked. There were also two basement windows that were left ajar to allow extension cords for the Christmas lights. And then there was another basement window that had been broken prior to that night and would have allowed someone to get entry. But detractors note that around all of these places, there were cobwebs and foliage and debris that indicated nobody had been through any of those in in recent um, time. Mm-hmm. So that's one kind of big thing. We come back to the ransom note, like who would have had time to practice and rewrite this long ass ransom note in the house? And also if an intruder had really come in to abduct her and then why would you assault her in the house? Like take her, make your getaway, Mm-hmm. You know, or if it had been you're going to abduct her, but like she fought back and you accidentally killed her, why stay and make a ransom note? Like none of that really tracks. Yeah, right. Then the other thing is the rant, and I think pretty famously so, the ransom note said, "Quote: You will withdraw one hundred and eighteen thousand from your account. A hundred thousand will be in one hundred bills, and the remaining eighteen thousand in twenty dollar bills." So $118,000 was the exact amount of John's Christmas bonus that year. Mm -hmm. So who the hell knew that total besides John and Patsy? Some folks, I think, say, well, somebody picked that number to incriminate them. But like again, it should be very clear or very easy to delineate a list of who exactly knew of that number.
0: Well, yeah, how would a random pedophile from the child pageant audience know that number?
1: Exactly. The Ramses also were very wealthy and publicly so. So around that time, they had a reported worth of about $6.5 million, which is about $11.5 million today. So, I mean, it's not like penis-shaped humanoid wealth level, but it's a lot of money. And also previously that year john had been named entrepreneur of the year by the boulder chamber of commerce so he was known in the community and known to have money known to be a ceo if you were a kidnapper and you're gonna go to all this trouble wouldn't you ask for more than just a hundred that hundred eighteen thousand dollars? so there's that again going back to john douglas he theorizes it was someone with a grudge against john but who you know i mean who like there's only so many people in his sphere couldn't they make a list who had a grudge against john and then go track them all down right
0: yeah i mean because from the flip point like why would patsy put that it could have popped in her mind just because it was a large sum of money they discussed recently Mm -hmm. or it could have been like well maybe this will throw suspicion on somebody from his work
1: right yeah yeah then the next thing that I noted that I hadn't heard about is that an unidentified boot print was found in the room where John Binet's body was discovered. I don't really know what to make of it other than it sounds like there were a lot of people with keys to the house, cleaning people and various vendors and workers. Also, they had just had a Christmas party, but I also know that it's very easy to say, well, they had a million people in the house, But I know from all the research that we do that when a police department has a crime like this, they track down every one of those motherfuckers and they get all of their shoes. So the fact that it is still unidentified is a question. um, And I don't have more information on it than that.
0: But from what I've heard, and the police bungled this from minute one. Yeah. Not sealing the scene, not even searching the house. Yeah. I mean, just crazy shit.
1: Yeah. So, another piece of information, and I don't have a really good source for this. (laughs) I'm just going to be honest, this came out of a thought catalog article. (laughs) So, take that for what it's worth. But John Ramsey reportedly called his personal pilot twice the day that Jean Benet was found dead. So, you know, as I was watching that YouTube video of the body language experts assessing Burke's interview. They ha- They did this thing where they were like, do you see at, you know, one oh two, he's looking at 8 mm-hmm. o'clock. And it's like, I know from the layout of that room, that's the exit. So I guess in body language, like, field, there's something called, like, an exit search. So basically, when you get under stress, you unconsciously look for exits. Uh-huh. And to me, this is like an exit search writ large. Is like, why in the fuck do you start calling your pilot the day that your daughter's been found murdered, right? Yeah. And and then actually leave town two or three days later. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Again, that little nugget of information came from Thought Catalog, so...
0: Yeah, (laughs) we'll catalog that.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um... Then kind of another random thought, open question, there was no blood spatter found in the house. So according to some people, this kind of proves that the blow to the head came post-strangulation. And John Douglas pretty much says that, that the blow to the head came after strangulation, which rules out this idea that she accidentally got the skull fracture and then everything else was a cover-up. But one thing... and i'm not a blood spatter expert and i think that whole kind of field is being somewhat discredited Mm -hmm. now but i do want to go back to my note about the fact that no one on the scene not john not the police no one knew that she had an eight and a half inch skull fracture until she was at the autopsy so clearly it wasn't the kind of wound where she had this gaping gash yeah And I don't know if it's possible to get a skull fracture like that without breaking the skin, but, I mean, it kind of seems possible. So there's that.
0: I've always wondered if that was fresh or, like, because they had the first 911 call that was supposedly a drunken Mm. party person, and I was like, well, what if she was hurt then, and they were like, don't call the cops because she got hurt doing something bad. I mean, not to go QAnon, but I'm like, we'll we'll talk about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So on the other hand, folks are saying that the level of swelling in her brain shows that it happened at least an hour or two before the strangulation. So basically, her brain wouldn't swell if she was already dead, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that there was any brain swelling shows it happened before, and strangulation was the final cause of death. So... Again, conflicting information here. Did the Ramsey defense attorneys have close ties with DA Hunter's office? Some folks say that there were. And again, I mean, I don't think this is QAnon to say, here's this prominent business leader who has the money to hire the best lawyers who maybe are like hooked in with the DA's office. Mm Because, you know, I mean, Boulder is a city, but it's not a huge city. And I think no one can really explain why D.A. Hunter refused to sign that indictment.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So that's the question. And then the whole Burke thing. So I've saved that for last. And we talked about this a little bit before. Was Burke a sociopath? Again, we're not psychologists. And I, I think even if we were, we couldn't diagnose someone who we hadn't ever met but there were reports that the woman who dictated the notes for the psychologist who performed Burke's first interview does that makes sense yeah <laughs> so the woman dictated the notes that the psychologist had taken from his first interview suggests that the doctor found Burke's manner blunted in many of his answers and also some of the answers were unusual for his age and circumstances She also noted a seeming lack of attachment to either of his parents or his sister who had just died. So, again, I mean, there's no one way that a child will act in times of trauma. But this is supposedly kind of a psychologist's unvarnished take. This isn't from a report. This is, again, a woman who's reporting on her notes to herself. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, she wrote, she sold them. So credibility, you know, totally. we take, yeah, take that for what it's worth as well. But things I didn't know until I dove into this, Burke was prone to fits of rage, specifically against his sister. Um, during a game of golf with John Bonet, he had lost his temper and hit her in the head with a golf club. Um, and that left a scar on her head. According to Ramsey's former housekeeper, Burke used to also do this thing where he would spread his feces around his sister's room whenever she upset him. And in listening to the behavior panel, they actually talked about this. And it's something known as scatolia. And it can indicate aggression um, and territorialism. So they referred back to a lot of things like apes do this, you know, so smiling, like, Bearing mm. teeth can be a hostile thing. It can be a fearful thing. It can be a lot of things in addition to, like, I like you, right? Yeah. Or, And so they talked about that. They also mentioned that scatolia can be linked to autism and that it's a behavior that can be found in folks who are on the autism spectrum. So, you know, again, I'm not a psychologist, but if you look up the list of traits that are associated with sociopathy – Fits of rage, lack of emotional attachment, and shallow emotions. Yeah. Those traits also, though, can be associated with autism. And so the behavior panel in this video, which I linked to in the episode notes, essentially comes to the conclusion that he's on the spectrum. Okay. Now we talk theories and stuff. And then don't, if you're following in my notes, don't read down because. Scott Rouse who is you know world leading expert in behavioral analysis body language blah had like a theory that pretty much blew my mind so I'm gonna save that but what do you make of it I mean does anything I just said change your mind
0: please rate and review us on apple podcast that really affects the algorithm and helps people find the show plus If you write a review and give us five stars, we'll read it on the podcast. And who doesn't want that? I just don't believe that anyone who wasn't a family member did it. Mm -hmm. The only flip side is if I were to go full on conspiracy, heavily aligned with QAnon, was that they allowed other people to abuse their daughter Mm -hmm. and something happened. Yeah. But I don't believe there's any way in which one of those three family members does not know exactly what happened and is guilty of something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the analysis that they did on Burke's behavior, they came up with there was some concealment there, but they believed that he wasn't involved in her murder. Mm-hmm. But they did feel like he had what they call guilty knowledge. So he was concealing things, and they definitely felt like he knew more than he was sharing. For me, when I think about this, I mean, I feel like between what the police didn't do and then what they did do and the Ramsey's PR machine and all of that, it's hard to know. Like, I don't know that it's knowable at this point. But I will say what strikes me most about all of this is just a vibe that I get. And so this episode, I mean, it's hard because it's a child and there are sexual overtones from the jump regardless yeah. of the findings in the autopsy because of her pageant stuff, right? And her being hypersexualized. But I I come from a family with a history of incest going back several generations and it's not something that people talk a lot about and it's not only I think people don't talk about it not just because it's embarrassing or shameful, but people don't want to hear about it. Like mm-hmm. nobody wants to hear that. But when you have that in your in your ancestry and like recent family history, you know when you get a vibe off of a situation that is weird. Uh-huh. And and I can't point to, like, this fact or that fact, but this whole vibe is of a family that has secrets, big secrets. I agree. And so I also have to ask myself the question, if this were a black family that lived in the hood, would everybody be saying no mother could do this to their child?
0: Not at all. And look at pageant moms and what we know of pageant moms now.
1: Yeah. Like Oh, yeah.
0: Those women are, can be, not... Not all pageant moms, hashtag. (laughs) But I would say the vast majority of those women are not well.
1: Right, right. I agree. And and, and I mean, I don't think it's only pageants. I mean, I think, you know, it's like hardcore sports parents and hardcore Hollywood parents and state, you know, like there's Mm -hmm. a lot of varieties of parents who either had children for the purpose of living out their own fantasies or realized that that was something they could do once they had kids Mm -hmm. so yeah i i don't claim to know what happened but something was deeply wrong in that family
0: fully agree yeah and then when you throw in the ransom note being written in the house practice in the house patsy was never ruled out yeah it's like the the lies and the timelines about when it happened the pineapple in her stomach them leaving the state immediately um refusing to give the clothes they were wearing to the police like there's so much and i mean if you're using that like i can't remember what it's called but the the dna testing of the underwear then her mom or her dad's dna must be in that underwear too because the six-year-old john benet wasn't doing the laundry and putting the clothes away like yeah there's just so much
1: yeah yeah
0: and then i don't trust rich people in the da i mean look at ahmaud arbery yeah and that da is under indictment right now yeah and yeah i don't trust rich people at all <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think the only reason they are not behind bars is because they were wealthy and they were white and they fit a certain idea that people like this don't do things like this. I think people had made up their mind before any evidence came out.
0: And this is where I could get in my things with the parents, like the ligatures and the gag. I wouldn't be surprised if they, like constantly tied her up <laughs> for mm-hmm. disobeying like there's so much this narrative of a parent could never do that i mean especially her in the pageant cycle seeing like those toddler and Tierra shows maybe she was misbehaving maybe she wasn't paying attention and they like tie her to the chair and now yeah. she has ligatures on her Wrists or binding marks on her wrists and ankles. I think the sexual assault is probably a thing that happened consistently mm-hmm. and was not a one-off thing with this murderer. Yeah, I just... I don't know that anything could convince me that the family wasn't deeply involved.
1: And I know that the the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence, but still, like, if there was an intruder, where is the sign like a broken glass that nobody kind of knows exactly when that happened that seems so flimsy like where is there evidence in all these other crime scenes it's like evidence all over the fucking place
0: even with a ransom note you're telling me i'm not gonna look in every room of my house oh i know absolutely not
1: no i know and they're like well they were thinking that they had successfully kidnapped her so they're no i mean if you wake up and your kid is missing like it has happened to me you turn your fucking house upside down before you're gonna call 9 one and go outside
0: no. even with the note there's no way you're not gonna look for clues on your own
1: right yeah for sure none of their behavior adds up yeah i agree i agree all right so are you ready to hear the theory sure So now, again, just to just to say, like, they felt very strongly that Burke was not involved and they didn't do assessment of any other thing. But the the panel, the behavior panelist named Scott Rouse, as I said, he came up with a new theory after assessing this video with Burke. He said, what if Burke didn't do it? But John and or Ramsey at first thought he did do it. And so they started a cover up. And then once they realized he didn't do it, they were in too deep and they had fucked shit up and they couldn't kind of take that back. And I mean, I think that could still hold true if Patsy did it. John thinks Burke did it. Patsy's letting him think that Burke did it. And then they go together to cover this crime up for Burke. But really, it was Patsy.
0: Which is possible. I mean, it's not a 0% chance that someone else killed her. Mm -hmm. But the family absolutely covered it up if not someone in the family was responsible for her death.
1: Right. Well, and then the question is, who? Who would they cover for? I mean, the only person that it's conceivable is burke there were other half siblings but they had alibis they weren't even in town and they checked those very thoroughly and re-questioned the half siblings a couple of times Mm -hmm. but i can't think of anyone else who they would go to that extreme i mean basically well this is
0: when you're getting into the further away like the more obscure like pedophile ring type of thing where john had a friend yeah and she died in that exchange
2: Mm-hmm.
0: and they had yeah. to cover it up not saying that's what i believe but yeah again not impossible knowing rich people knowing yeah. the history of sexual abuse
1: yeah i mean again i think people have an idea of what sexual abusers and people who commit incest look like act like think like and they couldn't be more wrong they're just regular people
2: yeah
0: And then the connections to the DA, I just, as a rich person and the grand jury recommending an indictment, I just, that's very flimsy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd be interested to know how often does that even happen, that a DA doesn't sign indictments that a grand jury presents.
0: But all the stuff a mother couldn't, like that, that's such nonsense.
1: Again, would anyone say that? if they had been black or latinx or anything no i mean that's a rhetorical question
2: (laughs) yeah yeah damn
0: i guess getting over to the culture before getting into some of like the stats just setting my own experience i was nine Mm -hmm. living my life just a little queer boy on a farm (laughs) then john benet is murdered coverage 24 7. her face and all that pageant makeup was everywhere she was on the tv she's at the grocery store every checkout line every reputable magazine every tabloid she was like a ghost living in my childhood as well as just sort of this personification of child murder And what that entails to a child. Right. So I certainly think John Bonet is a part of the constellation of my inciting incidents that have sort of turned me into this person. And how could she not be? And it wasn't just me. I read multiple think pieces all speculating that this case and its correlation to the widening access to the internet actually laid the path for like, quote unquote, online detectives or digital sleuths. Mm hmm. And then because of the confusing set of facts presented in this unsolved case, the parents' wealth, the seemingly infinite supply of glamour shots of Jean Benet herself, people, myself included, are still fascinated with trying to put together this puzzle whose pieces will never actually fit. And that's sort of where I get with the parents. Like, regardless of who killed her, they have set this in a way where it's like puzzle pieces – that are fake. It's like if you just took some out of a real puzzle, threw some random pieces in and were like, put this together, it will never fit together. And we have to remember that the internet was a different, a different place when this happened. People were still calling it the World Wide Web. (laughs) There was no YouTube, no Facebook. It was full of message boards. And that's where users virtually came together to try to solve the case, uploading documents and theories. In a sense, it was America's first crowd sourced murder mystery. And while this is the world we live in, cough, cough, podcasts, like we live in this world now. But that wasn't the case then. Uh, but by 1997, USA Today reported that there were more than 2,000 web pages dedicated to solving the case. And I didn't see it written this way, but it was on my mind from previous episodes. But like, this was a crime of the century that ushered in the modern era. Uh, So that said, there's no way I can fully encompass all of the pieces of media about this case. So I'll do my best. I have some paraphrasing, some groupings. But of the many, many, many books, these are some of the top rated. So We Have Your Daughter by Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist Paula Woodward, Who Killed John JonBenet Ramsey by Dr. Cyril Recht, a leading forensic pathologist and Charles Bondsworth Jr., an award winning journalist. Perfect Murder, Perfect Town by Lawrence Schiller. The Other Side of Suffering by John Ramsey, John Binet's dad, and Mary Chapion. John Binet Inside the Ramsey Murder Investigation by former lead Boulder Police Detective Steve Thomas and Donald Davis. Foreign Faction Who Really Kidnapped John Binet by James Kohler. Another former lead investigator of the case. And listen carefully, Truth and Evidence in the John Binet Ramsey case by True Crime Detectives Guild. Now, there are so many more nonfiction books on the case, but like I said, these were sort of the top. And same goes for documentaries, by no means an exhaustive list. The most recent documentary was 2020, The List Who Killed John Binet, which was released on ABC this year. Uh, 2016, the 20th anniversary of the murder. There were tons. There was overkill, the unsolved murder of John Benet Ramsey, which got a lot of information from the book *Perfect Murder, Perfect Town*, which I mentioned. That same year, there was the case of John Benet Ramsey, CNN special reports, John Benet, an American murder mystery, Dateline NBC, who killed John Benet, as well as the Dr. Phil episode that you mentioned, Kirsten. And it wasn't just Dr. Phil, discredited charlatan Dr. Oz, Dancing with the Stars contestant Nancy Grace, and Barbara (laughs) Walters all did specials on the case. In 2014, Unsolved Mysteries did an episode on the case. Uh, 2006, The Killing of Jean Benet, an evil twist was released. Again, very non-exhaustive list, but I just wanted to give this overview of like, it is still to this day constantly coming out constantly talking about but heading over to scripted tv and movies we have getting away with murder the jean benet ramsey mystery which aired on fox in the year 2000 that same year a miniseries perfect murder perfect town based on that book debuted on cbs starring chris christopherson and marg helgenberger lifetime joined the fray in 2006 with who killed jean benet and the next year Netflix also joined with a hybrid investigative film casting Jean Benet. And in this one, the case is explained by various Boulder residents who are auditioning to be part of the reenactments of the documentary. Have you watched it? Mm -hmm. It is fascinating. So, like, during the process, so these people who are, like, would-be actors that live in the area, they're dressed as the real-life people they're auditioning to play. And they're talking about their case, their own speculation. So rather than documenting the crime itself, it's observing how the events have become this pop cultural obsession and conspiracy among residents of the area. It's like, truly good.
1: (laughs) That sounds ultra creepy.
0: It premiered at Sundance before Netflix gained the distribution rights. Uh, It has an 81 on Rotten Tomatoes. Interestingly, With all of this, there isn't much fiction that I could find inspired by the case. I did find the 2008 novel My Sister, My Love by Joyce Carol Oates. It was her 37th published novel. It reimagines the Jean-Benet Ramsey murder with the ice skating champion Bliss Rampike and is narrated by her surviving older brother. It received general positive reviews, USA noting, quote, Employing her powerful imagination, the gifted Oates gets inside her fictional characters' tormented souls to solve the case. As a literary exercise, it deserves a raise. She brilliantly depicts status-obsessed parents who alternately push and ignore their deeply unhappy children, end quote. Hmm. So in an interview, Oates herself said, quote, i wanted to write a novel from the perspective of a young person from a notorious family those families that are often in the tabloids and have reporters constantly rolling them around i envisioned a young person an innocent person in tabloid hell with no place he could go end quote so reportedly she toyed with the idea of writing the novel from the perspective of one of oj simpson's children but ultimately settled on the ramses because she was intensely drawn to the drama of the children quote at a certain point i thought of the ramses i must have seen that little girl's made up face 500 times the photos of her and the beauty queen outfits were everywhere for a long time end quote
2: yeah
0: but she didn't actually research the case she just wrote <laughs> with that amount of knowledge she then wrote it but outside of this, there are cases and shows like Criminal Minds, CSI, sort of our usual suspects. Yeah. So not like a direct one-for-one one about Jean Minet, but essentially ripped from the headlines, uh, law and order style about her.
1: But I mean, I think that's how something over time becomes an archetype, you know? Mm-hmm. Is in those like in Shakespeare's time, it would have been, like. His plays, which were plays put on for common folk, right? And I think TV shows that churn out like that volume of episodes is kind of analogous to that mm-hmm. modern form of media.
0: And so, not looking at scripted fiction, the place where we go from this case is reality TV. Mm. So, since Jean Benet's murder gruesomely introduced the world to child beauty pageants in 96 the industry's estimated value has quintupled to be worth more than five billion dollars annually
1: that is astounding
0: disgusting
1: i mean imagine watching that whole thing and being like "Hmm, i want to be a part of that
0: well there was a moment so according to professor hillary levy friedman uh, an author and pageant expert there was an initial negative reaction, and child beauty pageants weren't doing as well, but that was followed by a few years after with a huge resurgence in growth. So Friedman said, quote, Definitely in a really morbid way, the murder gave rise to this. Many people who hadn't heard of them or seen them said, That looks like fun, or my child could do that, end quote. And part of... Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so then we zoom into TLC, somehow the learning channel, (laughs) and Toddlers and Tierras. It ran for seven seasons from January 2009 to October 2013. And it definitely generated a lot of controversy and negative reviews, but it was a massive hit. So much so that it had spinoffs. The first was Eden's World in 2013. Then here comes Honey Boo Boo, which had four seasons of its own, and introduced me to the iconic phrase, my go-go juice gonna help me win. (laughs) (laughs) Which was Honey Boo Boo just drinking Mountain Dew for her go-go juice. Wow. Um, Then two more spinoffs, Cheer Perfection and Little Miss Atlanta. But back to Honey Boo Boo for a second. It had its own spin-off, the Wii TV original Mama June from Hot to Not, which ran for five seasons. So it's a reality TV Titan for some reason. Yeah. And all of that flows back to Jean Benet. And that includes parodies of it on South Park, mad, scary movie, like this world. And it, and it came from such a horrific thing and to me that world is horrific in and of itself and five billion yeah. a year like no wonder people believe there's all these like pedophile rings going on and
2: ugh.
1: i mean when life gives you like a morality tale and society turns it into like hashtag goals you know something in your society has gotten <laughs> mm-hmm. like off course
0: in the world of music, John monet has been name-checked by Eminem multiple times, uh, as well as weird. <laughs> songs by Chino XL, Sway and Tech King, Jack Jackmo, June, MC and the Maniacs, Immortal Technique, Lewis Logic. It's also the inspiration for the song FM Doll by English alternative rock band Queen Adrena, and according to vocalist Katie Jane Garside, in an interview she said, quote, I know because of the lyrical content, it won't get on the radio. It's about child murder. Do you remember the Jean JonBenet case in America, the child beauty queen who was supposedly murdered by her brother and father? It's about that and the endemic infection of the female psyche." End quote. So this song's not on our Spotify because it's not on Spotify, but it's on YouTube if you want to give it a listen. Mm. And while it's baffling to me the rise of digital sluice, honey boo boo, and everything in between are at least part of the ripple effect from this case. And I those ripples are going to continue to go and extend for a long time to come.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, this is one that, again, I think really is unknowable at this point, because things were so mishandled and abuses of power and whatnot. And so the fascination will never end because there will never be a solution. And, you know, we've talked so much about how the mystery is part of what I think tickles that part of the brain.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, it's one that I'm obsessed with, but I had no choice. Yeah. The case I, was put into every aspect of my life.
1: <laughs> I didn't realize. Like, you you were exactly Burke's age. Oh, damn. I didn't
0: think about that.
1: Yeah. Well and as I was looking back at this, I was thinking of you and I was thinking I was like, oh you know I was this old and then I realized you were so young when we first talked about doing it and covering it, I knew that you were young but i I didn't realize like how little you were
0: yeah those those photos of her even as a kid they did like grossed me out yeah it's like a six year old like even as a nine year old I knew a six year old shouldn't look like that
1: yeah. Yeah, it's all very strange. Again, I feel like it's hard for me to believe that someone could watch all of that and then be like, I want to get my kid involved in that. And it's not... I mean, I don't think most people are like, her involvement in pageants directly led to her death. But... Ugh.
0: Yeah. And then just that little bit of trivia, we discussed it off-pod, but after Patsy died... John then had a relationship with the mother of Natalie Holloway. Yeah. Which I suppose it's not that weird if you dissect it that there are probably very few people on earth who could know what that feels like to have yeah. your dead child be part of such a media frenzy. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe Natalie's Holloway, uh, Natalie Holloway's mother was guilty, but I do believe... <laughs>
1: I mean, yeah, he's also very, like in the interviews that I saw as I was doing this research, also smiling, but he doesn't strike me as being on the spectrum. Yeah. He well, just but strikes it is hereditary me. often. I know, but, and again, I'm not an expert. I'm just, I'm just a person talking, basically. So don't take anything that I say for anything, but. <sighs> I mean, when you look at Burke and someone says, oh, maybe he's on the spectrum, you you are kind of like, yeah, I can see it. Like, he has certain mannerisms and stuff. But John Ramsey doesn't, other than, like, inappropriately smiling when talking about his daughter's murder, I don't know, he doesn't seem the same.
0: And everything we discussed in this episode, clearly it's our theories. I'm not saying... I want to get sued.
1: Don't get us sued. They're very litigious.
0: It is my opinion that they are guilty of something.
1: (laughs) Which, I mean, that is a fact because everybody's guilty of something.
0: Yeah, and if I want to hypothesize about him running a pedophile ring with his own daughter, so be it. I'm not saying that happened as truth. I'm just saying it's not a 0% possibility.
1: Yeah, I mean... The whole idea that, like, people who look like X couldn't do Y, like, that is bullshit. And I don't understand why anyone still... Like, I get having that knee-jerk reaction because we're all conditioned. But, I mean, haven't we all seen enough to know that, like, pretty much anyone is capable of anything?
0: And you hit the nail on the head that that is a distinction made for white women... ...of a certain income bracket.
1: For sure. I mean, like... ...the history of literature is riddled with awful moms... ...who do hideous, heinous things to their children... ...and any children. So it's like, when it suits the narrative... ...women are pious and pure and... ...you know, heavenly, angelic... ...and then all the other times... ...they're like evil, dastardly... ...like mostly brown um just yeah yeah
0: and i don't believe they didn't have an alarm system
1: i know i have that in my notes too so
0: somebody breaks into the basement goes upstairs silently kidnaps her down to the basement assaults her
1: yeah silently and and i read something that said that someone noted that typically burke could hear if somebody was downstairs getting into the fridge because he would get up and want to go have a snack too yeah in a house like that where you can hear somebody downstairs getting in the fridge like no
0: Mm -hmm. to even know where the basement is
1: a computer science executive doesn't have an alarm system And
0: the ransom note that was written and practiced in the house, multiple pages. The mom's handwriting is never officially ruled out. They, all of it, the ransom note being the exact number of his Christmas bonus.
1: I mean, so just to break it down, like, I feel like pretty much everyone agrees that they did the cover up. The question is who did the crime, right? I mean,
0: and I do think it's not zero and not one. That theory that you mentioned of, well, even if someone did it, they could have still thought it was Burke. Right. But,
1: I mean, ugh. at the end of the day, it's a story about a little girl who not only had her life ripped away, but in the six short years that she had, didn't have much of a life to begin with.
0: Yeah, those pageants.
1: It's very oh. sad. Very sad. All the ones we do are sad. But.
0: Well, happy holidays,
1: everybody. <laughs> uh, I think this is our last one for the year.
0: Oh, yeah. So, so we'll see y'all all in 2022.
1: See you on the flip side.
0: As always, we appreciate the hell out of you.
1: of fucking
0: Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini-episode,
1: visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in.
2: This has been a Facts from Janet production.